from Clearfield to Scottsdale, Middletown to Countersport, this is Lincoln Radio Journal. On this edition, the American Legislative Exchange Council has published its annual Rich States, Poor States report. How does Pennsylvania rank among the 50 states? Jonathan Williams is here with the answer. In the wake of the COVID-19 pandemic, affordable housing has become a growing problem. Joe Geiger talks about it with Scott Shewell of Safe Harbor in this week's Community Benefit Spotlight. And supposedly temporary health care spending designed to assist during the depths of the pandemic may be extended or even made permanent. Ashley Klingensmith from Americans for Prosperity Pennsylvania has details on this week's commentary. I'm Loman Henry, and welcome to Lincoln Radio Journal. We'll get to Jonathan Williams from the American Legislative Exchange Council in just a couple of minutes, but first, news headlines from patownhall.com. A few years ago, the Pennsylvania Department of Transportation received a massive infusion of funds following enactment of what was, in effect, a 30-cent-per-gallon increase in taxes. Only California and Illinois have a higher gas tax than Pennsylvania, but now the agency claims that revenue is inadequate and it is looking for additional sources of revenue. An effort to toll a number of frequently used interstate highway bridges fell flat after legislative objections and an adverse court ruling. So now PennDOT is looking to punt the ball to local municipalities allowing them to levy new taxes and maintain more roadways. That would require legislative approval, however, which is not likely to happen. The agency's appetite for more spending won't go away, so keep an eye out for more trial balloons. State Representative Carrie Del Rosso is the Republican nominee for lieutenant governor, and most recent campaign finance reports show that campaign propelled her to the top spot among legislators in fundraising during the primary election cycle. Del Rosso raised $2.1 million in her successful effort to win a spot on the ticket alongside GOP gubernatorial nominee, State Senator Doug Mastriano. According to the Center Square, Republican candidates and officeholders raised a total of $69.4 million during the recently completed primary season. And the Philadelphia Police Department is about to have its state accreditation revoked, largely because of a policy that restricts officers from making traffic stops to enforce sections of the Pennsylvania Vehicle Code. Broad and Liberty reports the Pittsburgh police are also at risk of losing accreditation due to a similar ordinance in the Steel City. Police departments must comply with standards set by the Pennsylvania Law Enforcement Accreditation Commission to be accredited, The state's largest cities have abandoned enforcement of some laws, even as violent crime has spiked in cities nationwide, including Philadelphia and Pittsburgh. Read about all things Pennsylvania at patownhall.com. The annual Rich States, Poor States report provides an in-depth look at the economic competitiveness of the 50 states. Jonathan Williams is executive vice president and chief economist at the American Legislative Exchange Council, or ALEC. He is co-author of the report. He joins us now with details. Jonathan, welcome back to Lincoln Radio Journal. 
Jonathan, tell us a bit about rich states, poor states, and the report that you put out annually. We've had you on the on the show a, a number of years now, but just for those who may not have heard about it, what is the rich states, poor states report? Well, it's really a report to help um, concerned citizens, taxpayers across the country, and their state legislators and those who care about public policy as a way to measure really how their state stacks up versus the other 49 in this competitive marketplace, uh, laboratories of democracy that we have, where states are directly competing with each other for job creation, and as individuals vote with their feet from one state to another. Uh, This has been a report now for 15 years, Rich States, Poor States, that I've co-authored with Arthur Laffer, who is, of course, Ronald Reagan's economic advisor, and Steve Moore, who's an advisor to President Trump. And we put together this uh, metrics, really, where it's, uh, we don't have any axe to grind with it. We don't, uh, you know, we're not putting our thumb on the scale. We're just calling it like it is to say, here's your policy resume, so to speak, when it comes to taxes and regulation and labor policy, things that we know matter for economic growth. And things, by the way, that lawmakers in Harrisburg and other state capitals directly control every single year when they're in session. And so uh, we think this is a great resource. It's proven to show, really, the rankings of states that do well in rich states, poor states, over time now, have been some of the fastest growing states in America when you look at some of the most important metrics like job creation and population and income growth. So what you're saying here, Jonathan, is that what states do matter. I know for the longest time, all the attention was focused at the national level. Was it the pandemic or what started focusing all this attention now on the individual state legislatures, state policies? Well, there's a couple of things in that regard, I think, Loman, and that is, first of all, certainly the pandemic, and uh, President Trump, rightly so at the time, decided that he was not going to make federal-based decisions that would have a one-size-fits-all problem, and he would allow states and their governors and their elected representatives to make some of the most important decisions. And, of course, then we saw some states excel, like uh, Ron DeSantis in Florida and, and uh, Christy Nome in South Dakota and others, and then some states uh, really fail because of a lack of of leadership of their governors, such as Governor Wolf in Pennsylvania, certainly, and Governor Cuomo in New York, and, and etc. And so we let this idea of federalism play out under the Trump administration, and that was a beautiful thing. It was obviously, you have to let some states make mistakes as part of that, and federalism can be a messy thing, but it's an, really an essential American principle that we let states govern themselves. Now, turn the page to the Biden administration, and what we're seeing uh, certainly today in Washington is gridlock, and so that almost by necessity uh, pushes decision-making down to the state level, and that can be, a, uh, ironically, a positive of gridlock in Washington, D.C. But then also, we had the issue of really this uptick in uh, movement between states because of pandemic-era uh, shutdown orders, because of then companies and, and employers realizing they needed to give their employees more flexibility to handle life situations and maybe take care of their kids because their kids' school was closed for the longest period of time in some states. And even this new normal that we find ourselves in is many big employers across the country are never going back to what they were 100% in the office five days a week. And so, if anything, we've seen this idea of people leaving high-tax states like New York and California and Illinois and going to lower-tax states. Those trends are accentuated because of a lot of the dynamics that we've seen over the last couple of years. As we look then at your most recent report, tell us a bit about Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania has been typically historically toward the bottom of the ranking of the states. Have we improved, gotten better? Are we pretty much where we've been? Where are we now? 
Well, Pennsylvania in the report is once again stuck in the mid-30s, coming at 37th for economic outlook this year. And that's once again based on these criteria like tax policy and regulation and labor policy that really do matter for economic growth. And so you're right, uh, Loman, in that Pennsylvania over our 15 years of the report can all be viewed at richstatesporestates.org with all 15 editions, has really uh, ranked between a band of the mid-30s and the low 40s. And so in anything, Pennsylvania has been consistently underperforming state because of so many other states moving in the right direction over the years. And uh, there obviously has been some bright spots recently with some of the business tax reductions. I think that will help overall. But I mean, nothing substantially that's going to move the needle to get Pennsylvania out of this trajectory of being a below average state, unless we have really new thinkers coming into Harrisburg to say, let's reevaluate the Pennsylvania economic resume and let's see what it takes to become a competitor state with some of the big growth states out there across the country. We are talking with Jonathan Williams from the American Legislative Exchange Council about the annual Rich States, Poor States report. And at the moment, we're discussing Pennsylvania's place in that, stuck in the mid-30s. Of course, there are 50 states, so that's not exactly the best place to be. Jonathan, what factors? Is it regulation? Is it tax climate? What is it that is keeping Pennsylvania down? Well, there's a few things, and uh, a couple of the most important variables are things like income tax rates, which, of course, have just been improved because of the recent uh, budget, but still uh, a lot of work to be done. And that's a long-term phase-in, as you know, Loman, over the next decade. And I think the challenge will be is how many Pennsylvania-based employers or individuals will decide to leave Pennsylvania while those tax cuts are being phased in, uh, because right now Pennsylvania has one of the very highest business income tax rates in the country with the CNI. The individual, obviously, is much much better at a flat tax, but when you add in some of the city taxes, like uh, Philadelphia's, for instance, it becomes uncompetitive. Uh, then you look at other factors that are non-tax policy, but uh, really very important when you talk to employers or why they're going from one state to another, right to work is being one of those, <laughs> the freedom whether to join a union or not, and uh, giving that uh, liberty back to individuals is such an important factor, as we found. My home state of Michigan, of course, became a right-to-work state, and that policy has swept through the Midwest and the Great Lake states because many of our states realize it's a yes or no question for future economic development and job creation. And there's other things like still having a death tax on the books, for instance, in Pennsylvania makes no sense whatsoever. It just gives retirees one more reason why they should leave Pennsylvania, not just the nice beaches in Florida during the winter, but obviously having punitive tax policy like that still on the books is something that really is a problem. Going around the country then, Jonathan, let's take a look at the states that are doing well. If you were to take a look at the top five, six states, which states are leading in the Rich States, Poor States report? Well, there's a, uh, a really a clear winner over 15 years, and that's the state of Utah that has been number one for each and every one of the 15 editions of Rich States, Poor States. And there's several reasons why that's the case. One, as I've talked about many times with you, Loman, is these massive unfunded pension liabilities with these defined benefit costly pension plans for government workers in many states across the country. Uh, Pennsylvania is obviously not immune from that. It's got billions upon billions of unfunded liabilities. Utah really trained transitioned a decade ago to more of a 401k defined contribution style of retirement that gives new employees more flexibility and as a result it saved taxpayers billions of dollars going forward. 
you add North Carolina, Arizona, Oklahoma, Idaho uh, to the list. I mean, those are our top five this year for economic outlook. But then many other powerhouses like Florida and Texas and Indiana are some very impressive stories of those states prioritizing taxpayers and always looking for ways to reduce tax burdens and regulation. And many of the most effective states out there for growth, Loman, are states that avoid personal income taxes altogether, like Texas and Florida. And uh, let's take a look at the seller dwellers here. What are the bottom five states? We can probably almost predict, but you have yeah, done you can act- be blindfolded and know what's on this list, I think, if you follow state policy. But New York, uh, 50th out of 50 for almost every edition in the last 15 years of rich states, poor states. New Jersey, California, Bernie Sanders, Vermont, and Minnesota. Illinois being uh, close in uh, to the bottom five as well. So many states, the high tax, high spend cronyism model of giving special favorites to those that are well-connected with their lobbyists in the state capitals, but keeping taxes high on everyone else. And of course, these are the states, by the way, that are hemorrhaging jobs and and businesses and individuals to states all across the country. The annual Rich States, Poor States report, Jonathan, what are the key metrics that you put into this report? Well, it's really 15 equally weighted factors that we look at, everything in these broad categories that we've been talking about. But if you were to have to really parse it out into what's the most important, I think you have to look at things like right to work. Uh, You have to look at things like uh, personal and business income taxes. And you have to look at uh, things like death taxes. And this is where Pennsylvania really struggles, where it still has a death tax on the books, not a right to work state. And especially when you add in the local income taxes, not competitive on the income tax uh, piece. Jonathan Williams is Executive Vice President and Chief Economist at the American Legislative Exchange Council. Jonathan, just give us a a short description here of ALEC, the American Legislative Exchange Council. Also, where's a website where they can go to the organization overall? And also, again, if you'd give us the website for the Rich States, Poor States report. Sure. ALEC is the nation's largest nonpartisan individual membership organization for state legislators. And so we have many members across the Pennsylvania House and Senate working to really devote ourselves to good public policy solutions that are based in free markets, limited government, and federalism. And of course, our website is ALEC.org that has rich states, poor states, and all kinds of great resources for you as concerned taxpayers and legislators across the country. And richstatespoorstates.org is the repository of 15 years worth of all of these fun rankings to see how Pennsylvania stacks up today and how it has over the last 15 years. Jonathan Williams from the American Legislative Exchange Council, and also, we should note, a regular commentator on our sister program, American Radio Journal, and you can read his commentaries there at AmericanRadioJournal.com. Jonathan, thank you for taking time to be with us. Always great to join you, Loman. Affordable housing is a problem, even in counties which are growing in population. To learn more, Joe Geiger has Scott Shewell, president and CEO of Safe Harbor, in the Community Benefit Spotlight. Thank you, Loman, and thank you, Scott, for being a guest on the Lincoln Radio Program. Thanks for having me today. So, Scott, you're president and CEO of an organization called Safe Harbor, working with homeless people and nearly homeless children and adults. Tell us a little bit about your organization. Well, we provide supportive services and housing for homeless and nearly homeless individuals and families in Cumberland County and beyond. We have short-term and long-term emergency shelter. We also have permanent housing options. Some of them are HUD programs. Some of them are just low income for those who are 
possibly disabled or not making a significant amount of money, even though they might be employed. Overall, we have about 53 units of housing right now. We're looking to expand that in the near future. You know, there's talk that Cumberland County may be one of the best places in the country to live these days. There's a lot of traffic moving that way. One might be surprised to hear there are homeless needs in that, that county. Well, the needs arise from the fact that Cumberland County is so popular. First, the county was the fastest growing county in the Commonwealth in the last census. The only county to grow by double digits, 10.3% between 2010-2020. And that popularity puts significant pressure on housing stock, and that puts significant pressure on rental stock. Folks might be surprised to know that in the month of June, statistics from the greater Harrisburg area area realtors showed that the average home sale price in Cumberland County for units sold in the month of June was over $330,000. That's a significant amount of money. And when that happens, it puts pressure on first low affordable housing, which becomes scarce because people can get significant amounts to sell their residence. And then that also puts pressure on the rental market. And the rental market has seen a significant amount of pressure in the last three years based on just the pandemic alone, let alone economic issues. Um, and many folks now are facing what The terminology is financial eviction, where landlords are raising the rent, one, because of inflation, two, to make up for lost revenue that they lost during the pandemic, and three, because many smaller mom-and-pop type landlords have been selling their rental units to larger corporate landlords who are looking to maximize their investment in these properties by raising rent a significant amount of money. So folks are being told that their leases are being renewed, but for upwards of 200 to $500 more a month than they're currently paying. And there's just no way that they're able to afford that. There is what's called the Coordinated Entry Community Queue. This is a HUD-based program where folks who are homeless or about to become homeless dial into Pennsylvania 211 helpline, speak with a caseworker who helps them get on this queue. In Cumberland County, Within the last month, the number of households on that community queue was 255. That comprises 495 individuals, of which about 140 are children. That is probably the highest we've seen in the last three years, even pre-pandemic. And about 116 of that 255 household number are literally unsheltered. That means they're sleeping in cars, they're sleeping in tents, they're in underpasses, they're somewhere where they are not safe but trying to exist. This is Joe Geiger on the Lincoln Radio Program. My guest today is Scott Shule, the president and CEO of Safe Harbor. So, Scott, when somebody comes into your program, what are the benefits for them? What, how, how do you make a difference in their life? Our goal is to really help them first calm the chaos in their life from being homeless and then provide them with a stable foundation with which they can build upon to hopefully then return to society as a productive human being. So we offer supportive services such as life skills training, parenting groups. We also work with other nonprofit organizations here in Cumberland County to provide them with employment skills training, provide them with health care, mental health care, treatment for addiction issues, and all of those other things that go with the reasons why they might be homeless. Scott, how did your program, your organization, 
like and similar or different than other organizations serving homeless people? Well, we're very similar to a number of other organizations here in Cumberland County who we work very closely with on nearly a daily basis. So, and I like to say that we have complementary missions. The way we complement each other is we help those who are in need, either needing housing or needing food. So we work with Community Cares, who offers a, an overnight shelter for individuals. They also have a family shelter in Shippensburg for families. We work with Salvation Army of Carlisle, who also offers residential and overnight shelter. We also work with Domestic Violence Services of Cumberland and Perry Counties, which offers shelter and services for those who are fleeing domestic violence. And then we also work with an organization here in the county called Project Share, which is a local food bank. I understand that your program opened doors three decades ago, and you've served thousands of people since its opening in the historic former hotel in downtown Carlisle. Tell us a little bit about the facility. Our main facility is the James Wilson facility. It used to be known as the James Wilson Hotel. It was the hotel until 1985, and we've traced its history back to the mid to late 1800s, and it's had various incarnations. It started out as the Mansion House Hotel, was the Hotel Argonne for a while in the 20s, uh, the Carlisle Hotel, and finally the James Wilson Hotel. By 1985, it basically had become Flop House. The county took possession. They worked with a number of concerned citizens in the community who knew that folks were in need of housing. And they formed what was then called the Cumberland County Coalition for Shelter. So we opened our doors in June of 1986, offering what was then transitional housing or long-term emergency shelter. And we have evolved since then to offer, again, short-term, long-term emergency shelter as well as permanent housing, housing options. Scott, if somebody listening to the program wants to contact you to make a contribution or volunteer, how can they find you? Well, there are a number of ways. We are on the Internet at safeharbor.org, and harbor is spelled H-A-R-B-O-U-R, so it is the European spelling. So safeharbor.org is our website. You can go there to donate. We're also on Facebook at Safe Harbor, Inc., I-N-C. This is Joe Geiger on the Lincoln Radio Program. My guest today is Scott Shule, the president and CEO of an organization named Safe Harbor in Cumberland County and beyond. Back to you, Loman. Billions of dollars in what was initially billed as a temporary increase in health care spending during the COVID-19 pandemic is on the brink of being extended or made permanent. Ashley Klingensmith from Americans for Prosperity Pennsylvania talks about it on this Lincoln Radio Journal commentary. There's a renewed threat from D.C. Democrats bringing back Build Back Better in a new form riddled with partisan priorities. At the heart of the bill is a proposed, quote, temporary two-year extension of Obamacare health insurance premium subsidies, subsidies that congressional Democrats expanded, quote, temporarily two years ago. Those expansions are slated to expire at the end of this year. Americans for Prosperity has held long-standing opposition to the Affordable Care Act, and we believe it remains a terribly flawed approach to bringing health care costs down. Earlier this month, the Congressional Budget Office's analysts 
estimated the proposed extension would cost a total of $40 billion. Well, now the CBO has clarified that estimate, adding what it would cost if the expansion were made permanent, a far more realistic assumption. The 10-year cost of the Build Back Better healthcare spending would be $248 billion over the first decade, a quarter of a trillion dollars, or about $25 billion a year. That is six times more than the early estimate of $40 billion. Taxpayers would spend a total of $75 billion a year on Obamacare, a 50% increase over the pre-pandemic rate of $50 billion a year. All this new money would go directly to health insurance companies. Most of the expanded subsidies would be used to reduce premiums of people who already have health insurance. It would only help a mere 2.2 million uninsured people, less than 1% of the U.S. population. For an average cost of more than 30000 per newly covered person, or more than four times the cost of an average workplace health plan, which is about $7,000 a year. Some of the money would be used to reduce the health insurance premiums of affluent households, including some whose income exceeds $250,000 a year. The existence of the expanded subsidies would cause nearly 5 million Americans to lose their current workplace health benefits. Many of those people would end up on Obamacare or Medicaid. Altogether, Build Back Better would cost taxpayers a quarter of a trillion dollars and give us nearly nothing in return. Majority Leader Chuck Schumer has employed a classic Washington budget gimmick, disingenuously claiming the subsidies will expire after two years. But no serious person believes him. After all, this is exactly what they told us two years ago. The spending is temporary because of COVID. Well, here they are with a straight face back for more. Their lips say temporary, but their actions say permanent. This is the sort of thing that caused Ronald Reagan to quip, the nearest thing to eternal life on earth is a government program. Well, in the spirit of Reagan, we need to say no to this deeply misguided plan and put it on the ash heap of history. Inflation, spending, deficits, and the national debt are at historic highs. While those in D.C. and on K Street may be immune from the impacts of inflation, for those of us living back in the district along the main streets throughout the Commonwealth's 67 counties, there could not be a worse time for more inflationary government spending. For Senator Schumer and his allies, every taxpayer dollar we spend on Obamacare, Medicaid, etc. today, no matter how wasteful, is just another brick in the wall of permanent government-controlled health care forever. Each of you listening knows that healthcare is personal, and you do not want what Leader Schumer and his colleagues are selling. Americans want to fix what's broken in the system while keeping what works. A personal option is about giving you the high-quality care you deserve from doctors you trust at a price you can afford without new taxes. 
Well, when we're together next, we'll discuss our principles of personalized health care and reforms Congress could pass right now to help Americans access higher quality care at a more affordable cost. I'm Ashley Klingen-Smith, State Director with Americans for Prosperity, Pennsylvania. Find us on Facebook by searching at P-A-A-F-P and on Twitter by searching at AFP Pennsylvania. If you miss hearing Lincoln Radio Journal on your favorite radio station, audio of our complete program is available on our websites, lincolnradiojournal.com and lincolninstitute.org. For 27 years, Lincoln Radio Journal has been heard on public affairs-minded radio stations throughout the Commonwealth, including WMBS AM and FM in Uniontown, WRDV-FM in Warminster, along with WEMR-FM and WBHV-FM in State College, Pennsylvania. Lincoln Radio Journal is produced weekly by the Lincoln Institute of Public Opinion Research, Incorporated. The Lincoln Institute is completely funded through the generosity of individuals, corporations, and philanthropic foundations, including the Houston Foundation of Coatesville, the Allegheny Foundation of Pittsburgh, and the Pennsylvania Manufacturers Association, all of whom have helped to underwrite the costs of this program. Lincoln Radio Journal is a trademark of the Lincoln Institute of Public Opinion Research, Incorporated. Comments and opinions expressed on this program are those of the guests and do not necessarily reflect the views of the Lincoln Institute or of this radio station. From the Lincoln Broadcast Center in Harrisburg, I'm Loman Henry. Thank you for listening to Pennsylvania's most widely broadcast public affairs radio program, Lincoln Radio Journal, plug into the pulse of Pennsylvania.